electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. The Dow is slipping again, and the Nasdaq is sinking to session lows on this final trading day of a shortened week. The most important hour of trading starts now. Welcome, everyone, to Closing Bell. I'm Sarah Eisen. Here's where we stand in the market right now. Pressure on big tech. That's the story today. Down 1.85% on the Nasdaq. It's those rising rates. We got a bit of a reprieve on yields in the last few days, but that's reversed. It's gone the other way, higher, and that is pressuring big tech. All the big mega cap names are feeling it. Software, chips. You name it, Tesla also not helping. It's lower on that Elon Musk bid for Twitter. The S&P 500 down 1%, masking some strength in groups like utilities and energy, staples and industrials. Take a look at the names dragging most on the NASDAQ 100 right now. Apple, Microsoft, Tesla, Amazon and NVIDIA. That's what's pressuring the major average as well. The S&P, again, down 0.9%. Coming up this hour, we will talk to the CFO of Wells Fargo, among the worst performers right now in the financials after the company posted a mixed quarter before the bell. Plus, Box CEO Aaron Levy on his stock's strong performance of late, plus details on a new hybrid work tool, and, of course, his first take on Elon Musk's bid to buy Twitter. He is among the more active tweeting CEOs. Let's get to the top story of the day, and that is... The big new chapter in the Musk Twitter saga. Elon Musk officially making a bid to buy Twitter for $43 billion. The stock initially popped on the news, has since turned lower. It's down about 2%. Just moments ago, Musk did make his first public comments during an interview at the TED 2022 conference. Listen. I, I do think this will be somewhat painful, and I'm not sure that I will actually be able to, to acquire it. Um, and I should also say the, the intent is, is to... Uh, retain as many shareholders as is allowed by the law in a private company, which I think is around 2,000 or so. So we'll, it's, it's not like a, a, it's definitely not, not from the standpoint of let me figure out how to monopolize or maximize my ownership of Twitter. Joining us now, Mark Mahaney from Evercore ISI, CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli, CNBC's Julia Borston. Julia, since this news broke this morning, there have been a, ca- a cascade of, of events, including a major shareholder, Prince Alwaleed, saying he's against it. Elon Musk speaking at this TED 2022 conference. Just bring us up to speed on where we stand right now and what we've learned this afternoon. Well, it, it has been a cascade of news, Sarah. That's a good way to put it. And there's also been a cascade of analyst reports weighing in, many of them very skeptical and many of them saying that this saga is far from over. So the latest thing that just happened is that Elon Musk spoke at the TED 2022 conference in an interview with Chris Anderson, and he explained his interest in in buying Twitter and taking it private, saying it's really about his interest in preserving this global town square as a destination for free speech, wanting to really preserve that for democracy, saying that even though it was going to be painful, that this was a very important cause that he wants to support. Now, there's been a lot of talk about the fact that Musk has spoken publicly and tweeted Mm. about his criticism of the ad-supported model. And so there's been this question about whether or not he would be underselling the potential for Twitter and if he were to find a financial partner, who that might be, if he's more interested in having a subscription business, which would presumably have many fewer users than an ad-supported 
business here. So still a lot of questions about what exactly this looked like, if he would find a financial partner um, and what the next steps are. But there's also been uh, some news out about the board talking about a poison pill and, and also this share, this meeting that the, that the company is going to be having with employees that's expected to be at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific today. All right. Thank you for bringing us up to speed, Mike. Board considering a poison pill, according yeah. to the journal. What, explain what that means and where, how unusual this is as far as your coverage of yeah. big M&A in the past. Well, when you get an unsolicited offer like this, one where it's not really at a premium to where the stock has traded within the last year, keep that in mind, um, it's one of the tools that a board will uh, often reach for if they feel as if the potential uh, owner or bidder is also going to keep acquiring shares to try and pressure uh, their deal. Uh, what it means is, if, they, if the uh, bidder does keep acquiring shares, it essentially triggers a, a huge rush of new share issuance that would dilute the new holder. In other words, it makes it uh, practically impossible to acquire a much larger, larger stake. So that's one. I think it's an easy no for the board on the outset just because of the price. Because well, the market you don't is have, telling you it's a no. Exactly. You don't have uh, really secure financing in this, uh, in this case. Interesting, too. In the TED interview, uh, Musk said he's not interested in, in the economics. He's not interested in turning a financial return on this. That makes it really hard to go get a financial partner or go get a bank <laughs> because this is not a financeable company in a large way at the current valuation that he's proposing. Maybe, but Elon Musk plays by different rules. Mark Mahaney, I, I've counted four analysts, your, your colleagues or competitors that have downgraded Twitter stock today, largely on this idea that Twitter's going to say no, Musk is going to sell his shares, and then the fundamentals come into play and they're not looking that great with, with all the macro headwinds around the advertising business. What's your take? I think you just nailed it, uh, Sarah. I think that's uh, exactly my take, and I think that's the market's take here, too. This looks like a public good initiative, not a public markets initiative. In other words, out, out of total respect for for, Mr. for Elon Musk, you know, it seems like what he wants to do is run it as a um, absolutist, you know, f uh, you know, free speech uh, platform. He's on the side of the angels in my book on that, but the devil's in the details if I didn't screw up that analogy. And, uh, you know, for uh, for shareholders, you know, we're, what are the ideas that are going to expand the value, the cash flow of this business? A subscription model, we've done a lot of survey work on this. I think about 10 percent, maybe, of Twitter users have mm. really won a subscription business. And you run the numbers on that. You're talking about half a billion in revenue versus the three to four billion in revenue that they're doing through advertising. So, look, the advertising model works. There's a lot of changes that need to be uh, done to improve Twitter, to create more value there. I haven't heard it yet from Musk as to what those changes are. Have you heard it from current management, Mark? Because because this doesn't exactly this whole thing cast them in a in a very good light. No, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't. Um, so, in all fairness, you know, you do have a new CEO. I don't think he's yet, and I'll give him six months to to come out with what his new strategy is. The company did take the first step in that process in acknowledging that they have a problem, that they have not been quick enough at product development, both on the user side on the, and on the advertiser side. So that's where I think the innovation has to go, and I think it has to speed up. They need to be able to better tap into the fastest growing element of internet advertising, which is performance marketing dollars. Twitter has been a brand advertising medium, not a performance marketing medium. If you want to grow faster, Twitter, you've got to develop performance marketing tools, and they haven't done it well enough yet. That's what they need to do. So this is right now a sideshow for what I think the real uh, fundamental changes that need to happen at Twitter should be. What is the stock worth to you, quickly? It's at 45 bucks right now. Oh, you know, I, this um, the, the pitch, by the way, that, that uh, Musk is giving that you know, 54 bucks or something with the pot number in there, the 5420, the 420 crowd. 420, the, That yes. number is, yes, yes, yes. That's, uh, that's some of my San Rafael neighbors here. 
uh, that's um, uh, th that's where it comes from. That's uh, that's like six to seven times, you know, EV to sales or price to sales. That's the average of the multiple over the last three years. So if you're a shareholder, it's like, well, where's my big premium? Where's my big bid? I think that's part of the problem a little bit with uh, with the Musk offer and all respect to him. That, I think that's part of the problem with the offer. Mike? You know, he, Elon Musk did just tweet. He replied to his earlier tweet. He, he reiterated what he said at the TED, which says, we'll endeavor to keep as many shareholders in privatized Twitter as allowed by law. If you remember back when he was talking about taking Tesla public, he had this idea, too, that public shareholders maybe could roll their stake into the private entity. Uh, this is very cumbersome. It's not the typical way. It would be a way to reduce the dollar amount he'd have to shell out. But again, if, if the economics aren't really there uh, and he you know, doesn't really have a, a way to juice well, the revenue model. Well, he'd have to sell Tesla stock, right? Well, to, to buy it, yes. But I'm saying if you're if you're going to say, fine, I'll roll my shares instead of taking your fifty four dollars, I'll continue to own the private company. You want to have some means of getting a return on that as opposed to just participating uh, in the creation of whatever this idealized platform he has in mind. Mark and not buying it down two percent of the stock to be continued. Mark, Julia, Mike, thank you all. Very much. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Sarah. Shares of Wells Fargo down more than 4%, by far the worst performer among the big banks that reported earnings this morning. We'll talk to the company's CFO about the results and his read on the consumer next. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. Dow's down about 29 points. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Take a look at shares of Wells Fargo sinking today after the bank reported lower than expected revenue amid a drop in mortgage lending. Earnings did beat expectations as it decreased its credit reserves. Joining us now in a first on CNBC interview, Wells Fargo CFO Mike Santamassimo. It's great to have you back on, Mike. Nice to see you. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for having me. As for the, the share price reaction, it seems like Wall Street wasn't that thrilled with the quality of, of the beat. The fact that it was reserve release related, revenues were lower, the drop in fees, the increase of in expenses. What happened there? Well, I think we're continuing to see some good things, you know, in there as well. You know, as as both the consumer and our corporate clients continue to, you know, have really high levels of liquidity. You know, people are out spending. We're seeing that in the results. Uh, you know, none of the none of the risks that we're seeing from inflation and other factors are driving you know any risks from a credit perspective yet. Um, and, you, and you also saw us continue to focus on our own priorities that we've seen. We've we distributed more capital back to shareholders. We're making progress on our efficiency initiatives. And we're also starting to, you know, or continuing to uh, launch new products and innovate. We, we launched our, our new mobile app in the quarter. We launched a new credit card uh, that gives renters the ability to earn rewards for paying rent. And so there's actually, uh, you know, a lot of good progress that you saw in the results uh, as well. And there were high expectations as the stock has been 
an outperformer among the financials. So, Mike, expenses seems to be the issue and one of the big focus areas, especially for a restructuring story like yours. They went up, but you, but you did tell Wall Street that they can remain flat for 2022. How much confidence do you have and how are you going to do that? Yeah, we feel really good about uh, the efficiency plan that we put in place, you know, a little over a year ago. We're continuing to execute on that. And although we had, you know, slightly higher expenses in the quarter, we still feel really good about the ability to continue to do that for the full year. Um, and this is going to continue to be a multi-year journey as we build uh, more of the efficiency uh, initiatives into our into our plan. And it's really starting. You know, it's not only about saving money; it's actually about like you know improving customer service. So when we do this, you get faster return, you know, faster turnaround times, better you know better capabilities for clients, better products for clients. And so there really is a win-win for everybody as we as we continue to drive the efficiencies. And we're and we're confident we're going to be able to keep doing it. On the fee side, uh, the, the big pain point for the consumer was mortgage banking, which I think deteriorated almost 50 percent quarter over quarter. What is ahead for your housing business as mortgage rates continue to climb as the Fed raises rates? Well, you know, in the quarter, we saw, I think, the, the largest increase in mortgage rates, uh, if not ever, certainly in a very, very long time. And that's going to have an impact on uh, mortgage volumes, particularly in the refinance, uh, in the refinance market. And you're starting to you know, see that uh, come through, not only our, our volumes, but also the industry uh, volumes. So we would expect that to have a negative impact, you know, at least uh, as we go into the, into the, second, uh, into the second quarter. Uh, but there are still some you know, bright spots in terms of the purchase market where we still expect that there's going to be some growth there uh, you know, this year yeah. as there's still a strong demand for, uh, for new, house, new homes. You see that holding up even with these higher mortgage rates? Well, it's certainly gotten more expensive, you know, as rates have gone up. But there still uh, is, there still appears to be a healthy appetite for uh, you know for new housing out there across the country. So, but so we'll see how that develops over the rest of the year. Aside from mortgages, I mean, you are a big net beneficiary of the the rising interest rates. Of course, that helps lending profitability. What, what is your expectation on that front now that the market's pricing in eight or nine rate hikes this year? What that's what that's going to well, do to your the- earnings? Yeah, what's what's clear, right, is the expectations have certainly changed a lot over the last uh, a couple months, and you know exactly how many rate rises we'll see and at what pace. You know, that's uh, we'll, we'll we'll see that you know together over the over the coming months. But what's clear is we're really well positioned in this environment to uh, to, to benefit from that. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully, you know, what it'll do is continue to, uh, you know, help tame inflation over the, over the coming quarters. Um, and, and we'll see how it progresses. But uh, we're certainly going to be a beneficiary from rates. Now, that'll also have some impact on, uh, on other factors that could, that could impact our fee lines. But, um, but hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll see that sort of progress over the rest of the year. Yeah, talk to us a little bit about that. How, how do you see it impacting the consumer, which... I think, as you said this morning, is in very good shape. You saw credit card spending rise, loans are up. What, what is going to happen to the consumer later this year and into next? Well, I think I think you know people are starting to feel the impact of inflation. You're seeing the you know these inflation prints come through over the last uh, over the last couple quarters. But so far, the good news is it hasn't really translated into real stress from a credit perspective, given the high levels of liquidity that that are there. And so, so far, you know, we're, we're seeing the consumer actually, you know, uh, do quite well. You saw a little wage growth as well over the, over the last couple quarters that's helped. Um, but I think we'll see, we'll see how, it, how it progresses. We would certainly expect at some point, you know, our charge-offs to go up and, and uh, maybe normalize a little bit more. But, but so far, so good in terms of the performance we've seen both in the consumer side and the corporate side. 
are you preparing at all for a recession? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the actions that the Fed's taking will certainly have an impact on growth. You know, whether that translates into recession, we'll, we'll see. But uh, we're certainly well positioned from a, you know, from a credit perspective as well as a balance sheet, you know, to, uh, to deal with whatever comes over the, over the coming quarters. And we're keeping a really close eye on it to make sure we understand, like, how to best be there to support, uh, uh, you know, support clients. But, you know, you're seeing, you know, not only, you know, the consumer spending that you talked about, but we're also seeing loan growth across consumers, we're seeing it in the corporate space, uh, in, in our commercial banking space as well. So there's still, you know, you know, still a pretty healthy amount of activity in, in the economy right now that I think, uh, you know, should at least bode well for, uh, for the next couple quarters. And Mike, also wanted to ask you about the hit to capital. It's still in excess, but it's certainly not as much of a cushion for higher buybacks in the future. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, we certainly saw the impact of higher rates impact capital really across uh, across the industry. But you know, for us, you know, we, we come into this position with a really strong uh, balance sheet, really strong capital position, um, and so we feel like we'll be able to continue to uh, not only you know be there to support clients, but you know, to distribute capital back to shareholders over the uh, over the coming quarters. And, and again, as you mentioned, we'll be a real net beneficiary of an environment like this. And so the earnings generation of the company should be, you know, should pick up over over the coming quarters, too. Stock's down about 4.7 percent. Uh, but as I mentioned, had been an outperformer this year. Mike, thank you for your time today. Mike Santamassimo, CFO of Wells Fargo. Great. Give you a check of where we are in the markets. Dow's gone positive again. It's sort of been back and forth around the, the flat line this hour. It's up 13 points. It's the NASDAQ that's underperforming. One and three quarters percent decline. Takes the losses for the week to more than 2%. Second week in a row of weakness. The Russell 2000 index of small caps also getting hit hard today. Down three quarters of 1%. Strength in energy, utilities, and staples. But the weakness in tech and consumer and financials is hurting. After the break, what do chips, transports, and banks, speaking of, all have in common? Mike Santoli will tell us in his dashboard. And then later, box CEO Aaron Levy tweeting his take on Elon Musk's bid for Twitter, of course, writing, I mean, who hasn't worked multiple jobs just to save up enough money so they could splurge on their favorite app? We'll talk to Levy about Musk's offer, plus Box's own product news this week. Closing bell back in a moment. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. 
The Dow is pacing for its third straight week of losses. It is currently higher by about 19 points. Let's go back to Mike Santoli, who's taking a closer look right now at bellwether groups, Mike, especially the cyclicals. Exactly. Cyclical bellwethers, also risk appetite gauges. This would be semis, uh, transports, as well as banks. Over the last 12 months, boy, it's really been about one trade, all of them down about 5%. Remember, one year ago, in March and into April of last year, we actually had the end of a real reopening cyclical uh, boom type trade. And we've come off that. Just for comparison's sake, the S&P 500 itself is up more than 6% over these 12 months. So the outperformance of the market versus these groups is pretty dramatic, more than uh, 11% right now. Question is, are they maybe tentatively bottoming? I mean, they're not plunging to new lows. If you look at something like the transports, you know, they've kind of held that general area here. Airlines have acted better. Uh, it's a little bit of a dicey proposition. They clearly are not really the leadership of this market, but this is where you'd want to look, Sarah, if, in fact, we come to some kind of collective conclusion that the recession alarms have sounded a little prematurely. What's interesting here is that they're all moving so closely together. Yeah. Because you would think that the banks get a little bit of the benefit of the doubt with yep. the higher rates. I mean, there are different factors at work. The no, you're absolutely and right. The transports are getting a, a ton of demand. Well, let's right look now. at how. Let's look at where banks in the orange were right at the beginning of the year. They were getting the benefit of rates for a while, and then the rate move kind of tipped over into maybe it's going to be accompanied by problems on growth. As we just heard yep. from Wells Fargo CFO Mike, thank you. We'll see you in the market zone. Up next, Box CEO Aaron Levy reacts to Elon Musk's offer to buy Twitter, plus how his company is trying to cash in on the future of hybrid work. Dow is up 12 points. NASDAQ still sharply lower, down almost 2%. We'll be right back. Software company Box announcing a new collaboration tool for its customers this week. It's called Canvas. It's a way to allow hybrid work teams to collaborate from anywhere. The product will be rolled out later this year. Box shares are a little bit lower today, but they've had a strong run lately, up more than 20% in the past month. Joining us now to discuss is Box CEO Aaron Levy. Aaron, thanks for joining me. Obviously, we'll get to the prize announcement, but, but because of the news of the day, and I know you're following it very carefully on Twitter, where it is unfolding about Twitter, the Elon Musk bid. Do you think yeah. this company should take the deal? You, you're an avid tweeter. Uh, this is just my luck. I wanted to talk about Canvas, but uh, Elon had to go uh, blow that up with, a, uh, with, with a, an SEC filing. So, um, I, you know, Elon Musk is, you know, obviously one of the top entrepreneurs of all time, uh, one of the greatest innovators of all time. Um, I do believe that that you know fifty four dollars a share is probably too cheap for for Twitter. Um, you know his particular take uh, seems to be one about free speech and, and censorship online, um, but that does not necessarily mean that that is the best path for monetization and building durable value at, at Twitter. And so I think the comparison would be um, alternative paths that would actually generate more value uh, for the company over the near and long run. So that will be the you know question for the Twitter board. Um, but uh, but it's. Certainly a lot of chaotic energy going on on the internet right now, and uh, it's good just to be on the sidelines of that one. Well, and, and the markets as well. So, so you, you mentioned the free speech aspect, which is sort of interesting that that's what he wants. You know, as someone very familiar with this product and with clear views about its value, do you, do you think Twitter should res restrict speech or hate speech less uh, and, and some of the other areas where they've had to crack down, especially in this kind of regulatory environment? 
And this is an incredibly tricky topic, and it's uh, it's one reason why very few people probably want to run social media companies. Uh, you know, these days, these are uh, challenging decisions that that I don't believe that that you know there's a very clear answer for. What you do want is be, being able to build safe platforms where people feel like uh, they can communicate and not be harassed, um, and that that there's no threats of violence and other types of issues. Uh, and at the same time, people want to be able to freely share their their thoughts on different topics going on, and and that's uh, that's always a uh, an important balance to find when you're when you're running one of these social media platforms, and it's not not clear to me that that you know there's a much better way to do it than uh, than than some of what we've seen from YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. Um, but uh, you know we'll we'll see how this plays out. There's another angle that I just wanted to ask you about, and that is during your proxy fight with Starboard when you were defending your company and ultimately prevailed, you had KKR come in with with some financing and advisory work to help defend the company. They've got Silver Lake on their board, Twitter, that is. is. Is that something that you could see happening here, either through advisory or financing work, help that company defend itself against Musk? Um, you know, th this is what, what the Musk situation is probably uh, so um, unprecedented uh, just in the in the sense of, of the, the type of takeover approach. It's not it's not clear that this is, uh, you know, sort of a. Um, uh, exactly like an activist coming in as much as a, a sort of a one-time offer for the company. Um, and, uh, and obviously Twitter will have to make the case for why, you know, they have a better path, more than $54 a share, but whether that requires another bidder or another investor to come in and, and make that case for them, um, I, 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 you know, very hard to imagine, but I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of great meetings with investment bankers and law firms. Oh, yeah. A lot of busy ones. OK, Aaron, let's get to the news of the day. And that is Box sure. Canvas. Yes, that is what everybody's <laughs> um, talking about right. online. So. so 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 you've got this new tool that you say that your clients demand to, to help promote hybrid work. My my basic question is, how is it different and how is what you're doing and offering different than some of the bigger competitors like a Microsoft or a Google? Yeah, so it's, it's uh, extremely different. So what we what we do is we focus entirely on the, the life cycle around content. Um, and that could be the storage, the sharing, the security, the classification, the threat detection, the workflow automation, the data governance. So that's the platform we've built out. And increasingly, we want to introduce uh, new and improved ways of working with your content. Things like e-signature that we launched last year, where BoxSign is now fully baked into our platform and can offer complete uh, e-signature capabilities uh, built on uh, Box. Similarly, with Box Canvas, we offer a new way to be able to collaborate in a virtual whiteboard or visual collaboration interface where all of that data goes back into Box where it's secured and protected for our enterprise customers. And so Box has over 100,000 customers uh, all around the world. They're using us today to be able to securely manage their content. And we're going to be introducing more and more capabilities that really creates the best platform to work with your content and collaborate uh, with anyone all around the world. And that's that's the, the real vision that we have. And then we'll integrate with all of the yeah. other software that our customers are using, whether that's Microsoft Teams or Slack or WebEx or Zoom or Salesforce or IBM technology, any uh, other tools that our customers are working with, we want to ensure we are embedded deeply into. Well, so clear, you've turned this business around, Aaron. The, the stock has been, it's up 18% this year on, when the NASDAQ is down 14% on the year. A unlikely safe haven, I would say, in the software storm. What are you telling investors about how much more upside there is in client acquisitions, in revenue per seat, and, and the growth that you have in front of you? Yeah, so we just had an analyst day a couple of weeks ago. We laid out a, an updated three-year model, uh, taking Box to 15 to 17% annual growth uh, in that three-year, uh, at, at the three-year point, and uh, improved our operating margins uh, uh, to the sort of mid to high 20s 
uh, from an operating margin standpoint. So I think um, we've been able to introduce a model which uh, is able to drive consistent and increased growth rates, as well as consistent and increased operating profits, um, which we think is a very durable model, particularly in this um, uh, climate from a, a stock market standpoint and a macro standpoint. But we think it's a model that will be durable uh, over the long run as well. And so we're really excited about that. We still believe there's significant upside in the business. Um, we just announced a, uh, a share repurchase of up to $150 million in additional share repurchase. And, uh, and so that, I think, you know, certainly, yeah. certainly speaks to the confidence we have in the, uh, in the share price going forward. Aaron Levy, Aaron, thank you very much. And thanks for bearing with the, the whoop whoops, which happened at 3.33 on a Friday before a three-day weekend here on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Always fun. Aaron Levy of Vox. Here's where we stand in the markets right now. The Dow is down again, 54 points. The S&P 500 down about a percent. That's pretty much where we've been holding throughout the session. Strength in energy and utilities, staples and industrials, weakness in tech and communication services, financials and consumer. Semiconductor stocks, a big factor in the sell-off today as well within technology. Why the chips continue to get clobbered later on Closing Bell. S&P down a percent. We are now in the closing bell market zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day as always. Plus our Leslie Picker on the big day for bank earnings and City Scott Cronert on today's market action and some new sentiment data. The major averages trading lower right now and for the week. The Nasdaq's down about 2% today and the Dow is on track for its third straight week of losses. Mike, if you look at today's performance, especially the pain on tech, and that's really been the theme of the week, you're going to hate this question, but do we need Treasury yields to stabilize for the market to go higher? Because they're going the other way today. And, and the last few days when they've come down, that's been a big support for the market. No, I don't hate the question. It's, you, do, it, you don't like the direct link. I, well, I don't like the direct link as if that's the only determining factor. Um, I mean, the, the valuation compression that we've seen in the Nasdaq obviously has something to do with yields going up, corporate yields going up. But we've traded at this level of the Nasdaq literally over the last year when yields were at right now 2.8, when they were at 1.8, and when they were at 1.6. So obviously there are other things going on, but I do agree to some degree with the premise that uh, it, to the extent that long yields globally, by the way, today was a lot about the ECB right. and long yields in Europe going up and releasing U.S. yields higher. We're seeing a re-steepening of the yield curve, and that obviously means, you know, we're still on alert for the inflation trade. Nothing really was decided in stocks this week, but also the only positive is the absence of a breakdown. That's the way I would characterize it. Otherwise, it's been indecisive and one up day, one down day within a 2% range. Big down day for the euro, to your point. On, yeah. on the ECB, President Lagarde not sounding very hawkish, not sounding no. like Powell when it comes to fighting inflation or talking about interest rate hikes on track to end the bond buying program. But but nothing really too surprising in the, in the hawkish side. So it went the other way. Mike, what, what can we expect? Are we just continue to be at the mercy of Fed speak and macro reports to see whether inflation has peaked? You know, to a degree, obviously we will. It's going to get heavier on the earnings side going into next week. Uh, we're going to be free of the sort of, you know, tax deadlines slash uh, options expiration of today. So maybe it's going to be a cleaner view. Huge drop in retail investor sentiment, uh, at least by the AAI survey. I mean, almost fluky how low it is, like a 30-year low in bullishness. Uh, that, to me, at least insulates the market from something nasty and lasting on the downside. But, yeah, I think it's, it's corporate earnings, and we're still not at that point where we can, with any real conviction, say inflation has peaked and, therefore, you know, the Fed can ease back slightly. 
Take a look at the financials. Among the worst performing groups today, four big banks reporting earnings. Wells Fargo beating profit estimates, but revenues came in light because of weaker than expected mortgage lending, among other things. The stock, one of the worst performers in the S&P, actually, as a result. We just talked to the CFO about it. Meantime, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley all beating earnings expectations thanks to strong trading revenue amid all the market volatility. Leslie Picker joining us. And Leslie, if you take some of the threads from all the conference calls and and all the, the bank earnings today, what were your big takeaways? Yeah, Sarah, with four banks reporting, I think we listened to about six hours worth of calls today. And there was a very key thread among all of the CEO commentary, which was, we are concerned about the risks, the uncertainty that lie ahead. Goldman Sachs's David Solomon highlighted, you know, seeing an increased risk of stagflation and mixed signals on consumer confidence. Uh, Wells Fargo's Charles Scharf, Uh, noted that they will likely see an increase in credit losses from historic lows, of course, and they did say that they would be a net beneficiary as they benefit from rising rates. J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon, this was yesterday, uh, but he mentioned that there's almost no chance you won't have volatile markets. Jane Frazier talked about how the macro outlook for the rest of the year can only be described as complex and uncertain. You pull all of those comments together, Sarah, and you really do have a concerned CEO group about what lies ahead. And it's important because bank CEOs uh, do have so many touch points within the economy that, you know, you have to listen when they sound the alarm. I'm curious your thoughts about Wells Fargo. And I I don't know if you heard our conversation with the CFO just a few minutes ago. Jim Cramer suggests execution problems, the fact that they're not taking advantage more of their scale and and lending more and that the, the misses came on things like fees and higher expenses. What Mm -hmm. is your take there? Because this one, there was a lot of hope as this was sort of seen as the value play in banking, the one with the restructuring turnaround story. Yeah, no, I think part of it too is the fact that Wells Fargo was the one bank going into earnings today that was actually beating the S&P 500 and was actually positive for the year. Every other large bank that we track was in the red for the year. So investors were looking for any potential slip up from earnings. As you mentioned, the fact that fees were lower, expenses were higher. Of course, the mortgage market has been uh, somewhat of a headwind for them as well as there are fewer originations. I think they were down about 33% with regard to mortgage originations just based on the the fact that mortgage rates have gone so high and Wells Fargo has the most exposure to that among the big banks that we follow. So, um, you know, part of it is just valuation. And then part mm-hmm. of it was that investors, uh, you know, were able to be a little bit pickier because the stock had run up so much. Leslie Picker, Leslie, thank you. One of the best performers, in fact, the best performer right now in the Dow is Nike. Also, one of the best in the S&P, rallying 5%, a slew of analysts. That was some positive notes following an event hosted by top Nike executives, including the CFO, Matt Friend. J.P. Morgan, Jefferies, and UBS all reiterating their buy ratings on the stock. The street loves this name. Highlighting optimism for Nike to deliver sequential improvement in China, especially, Mike, Matt Boss of JPM highlighting the China story. Despite the fact that we have lockdowns, it's hard. You know, Nike gets hit when there are these macro concerns. And then you hear from the company, they heard from the CFO, and everything seems to be going just fine. Talked a lot about the brand heat in some of these new releases. How does Nike stock look? overall for a brand that does have pricing power but also gets whipsawed by the macro. Yeah, it's been a little bit in the penalty box. I think it's largely because it did have this amazing run. A lot of the elite global brands did through the pandemic. It's still, you know, 20-something percent off its high. Uh, So it's been holding in this range. It first got to this price in late 
2020, like, you know, around Thanksgiving of 2020. So it's really been long sideways. Uh, I do think, you know, it's going to trade at a premium. The question is how much of one. It's like 35 times forward earnings, well down from where it was at the peak. So I do think any relief on, as you say, the macro issues, it does tend to uh, get penalized when those things are front and center. So um, hard to say that the stock really looks like it's about to take off, but uh, it, it's, you know, gone sideways for a good long time and digested that huge gain after 2020. It's just so hard to know what to do with some of these retail stocks. XRT actually had a pretty good week and has had a nice run, yeah. although well off its highs. Because all you hear is the consumer's great. Even the banks say right now the consumer's in great shape. Credit card spending is up. Everything is up. But we're not so sure about the, the medium term and long term. And I, you just wonder how much of a cushion is out there in terms of the strong jobs from market and the strong consumer to withstand some of these shocks we're dealing with. Yeah, and everyone seems also to be anticipating this, and maybe it's already you know, very much underway, this transition away from goods into services. There's a little more of limited ways to play that in the market, and that, that has been hanging over some of these areas, although I wouldn't say Nike is one of those companies where it's been, you know, the boom in durable goods yeah. demand is going to go away. It's much more steady, and it's a perennial buy. Uh, it's not like Whirlpool, which has been a terrible stock because the appliance market uh, looks like it's challenged. True. Let's hit the chips. That's those stocks taking a hit again today. NVIDIA, Taiwan Semi, AMD, among the biggest losers on the SOX Semiconductor Index right now. Taiwan Semi beat estimates, raised guidance, but earlier today on Squawk Box, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy warning that the global supply chain still faces major challenges. Listen. There are certain items that are very difficult to get. Uh, you know, we all are, are have a lot more demand for chips than there is supply right now. And, you know, because we design our own chips and we buy a lot of chips for the things we do in AWS and our devices, even in our vehicles, we get a fair share of those, but still it's, it's not fast enough and it's not enough. And I think some of the issues happening right now in China where, you know, um, as there are variants and, and as they're being very conservative and locking down uh, production, creates some issues in getting products as fast as we need. And it's still more expensive and more time consuming to get products into the country. Let's bring in Christina Partsinevelos. Christina, even though it is time consuming and costly, are companies doing enough to boost this domestic chip supply? I guess it can't happen overnight. Yeah, it can happen overnight. It usually takes one to three years for these foundries to be created here in the United States. you got Intel, uh, Taiwan semiconductors that are doing so, but it's going to take some time, and the United States is already behind the curve. So uh, to echo Jassy's point, yes, uh, there needs to be a little bit more done. If we're talking about Taiwan semiconductors, another issue, too, is the equipment needed to build these foundries. The lead time could be, you know, well beyond a year, well beyond 12 months. They even said in their report today that they have uh, issues with tool delivery, so there's tool delivery problems that they've been seeing since the beginning of this year, not just now. So this is going to be an ongoing problem. And they also warned, too, that inventory levels remain elevated. Why? Because people are stocking up just in case this chip shortage continues. And this is not just about the actual chips and the wafers and everything that goes in it. It's also the equipment as well that this continues well into 2023. And there's also the, the fight for market share and the, the competition. You, you've got some new data on yeah. who's ahead. Yeah, this is a Gardner. They just put this out today. Uh, revenue for semiconductors jumped 26% in 2021, but Intel was dethroned. Intel was dethroned by Samsung mm. Electronics. Samsung is now number one. This is the first time Intel has been pushed off this list, uh, well, pushed off, moved to second place since 2018. So you can see right there the top four, Micron number four. Christina, thank you. Christina Parts and Evelos. 
Citigroup's Lefkovich index, named, of course, after the late Tobias Lefkovich, dear friend, crossed into euphoria territory this week. Joining us more to talk about investor sentiment, it's Scott Croner, U.S. equity strategist at Citi. Scott, explain this. Sure. I thought all the sentiment readings were so down in the dumps. You're saying euphoria? Well, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the index is comp- comprised of roughly 10 inputs, and, and they're moving in different directions, but I think versus the past week, We've seen a pickup in a couple of the inputs that have triggered the index back into modestly into euphoria territory after being in a more neutral range for the past month or so. And so, you know, we're keeping an eye on the various inputs, but the, the net effect of this is to underscore some of the conversation in the last few minutes that, heck, market's been actually fairly resilient since the Fed's first rate hike a while back. And, and so we just need to be prepared for, you know, ongoing bouts of volatility in response to this. Right. So, so your argument is, and you're looking at it really near term, just in the last week, the resilience of the market is making people feel a little better about it. And therefore, that's a warning that there's more downside ahead. Is that the takeaway? Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd say, look, at you know, we're still moderately positive for the rest of the year. We think we can get to 4,700 in the S&P up five or six percent from here. I think earnings are going to be the driver of that. But Along the way, we've got a lot of inputs that we need to factor in, uh, both geopolitical, economic, and of course, you know, from a Fed monetary perspective. So, I think I think this notion of volatility being with us for a while is, I think, probably the the, the important take-home message here. And the Lefkovich index just gives us another way of reading this and preparing for it, particularly as we head further into the yeah. earnings reporting period. Losing a little steam here into the close, down 1.1% on the S&P. You had industrials turn red, so now it's just staples, utilities, and energy higher. Scott, have you changed your your views at City about the sector performance and where you want to be in the market? More defensive, perhaps, less cyclical, right. given all the changes we've been going through? So what we've done um, is, is through a factor lens, is we've really highlighted quality as the factor that we want to be attentive to. Um, and essentially what this does is give us a means of navigating sort of a mixed value versus growth uh, circumstance. And, and what you get with quality are going to be those types of companies that presumably have more pricing power against an inflationary backdrop. And we think that this is an appropriate approach for, for navigating this ongoing period of, of volatility as we're watching the extent to which the Fed goes down its uh, more hawkish path. Mike, what, what, what do you make of the, the quality trade as sort of a related call to a defensive trade? Yeah, it, it absolutely. Almost everything that you would look at in terms of, you know, where we are in this cycle on the later side, where we are uh, in terms of the profit trajectory feeds into that idea. You want companies with better balance sheets, more resilient profit margins, things like that. The, the bit of a trap, as we talked about earlier this week, is that a lot of the quality screens really surface a ton of NASDAQ mega cap growth in tech stocks. So there's a way to, you know, obviously mitigate that. You could look in other sectors. Uh, you could basically look at things like shareholder return, uh, you know, buyback and dividend strategies, which have done relatively well. So I guess you kind of have to, you know, settle on your definition of quality, but it, it generally, you know, does make sense and it has been working modestly. What, what about that, Scott? And, and what about tech and its setup into earnings as we get sort of knee deep going into next week? Yeah, well, I mean, so I guess what I would say on that, the setup for tech, obviously, we're of the view that as we go through the Q1 reporting period, you're going to see, generally speaking, a more normal positive surprise circumstance across the board. Uh, obviously, what's going to come into question are outlook commentaries 
from a variety of different sectors. When you look at tech specifically, yes, it does tend to carry a a, 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 a positive quality attribute to it. Uh, but what I would also point to is as we talk about this real rate discussion and we look at where the sensitivity to real rates is, just keep in mind that that rising real rates is more of a headwind for growth, i.e. tech, than it is for value other, uh, i.e. other areas more defensive and economic sensitive in the market. So we have to keep an eye on this toggle between what fundamentals are telling us, the quality mm -hmm. attribute is a way of navigating this, but at the same time, rate, rate direction is going to have, and particularly real rate direction, is going to have a, a big impact on how, on how the near-term trading unfolds. Scott Croner, thank you. Got to go into the close from Citigroup. As we deteriorate, Mike, here a little bit, NASDAQ now down well below 2%. What do you see in the internals? Yeah, and in fact, the downside in the indexes since about 2 o'clock has mostly been, again, about, uh, about the NASDAQ and the big growth stocks, but it's pretty broad now. Uh, you see more than 2 to 1 declining to advancing volume. That was much closer to 50-50 in the morning, so definitely been some distribution here in this market around this 4,400 level of the S&P. That's around the floor you'd want to see hold uh, to keep it out of that kind of sloppy zone near the lows. Take a look at the equal weighted S&P against the market cap weighted version year to date. Still a lot of outperformance by the typical stock. You see almost four percentage points, three and a half percentage points of performance differential year to date from the equal weighted S&P. That shows you it's largely been the mega caps that have been the drag. It's been the opposite in a way of parts of the prior two years. The volatility index not doing a whole lot. We are ahead of a three-day trading weekend. That often saps the VIX. So we're down near 22. Still not raising a whole lot of uh, sort of stress hormones in the market just yet, Sarah. Session lows. Maybe some selling into that three-day weekend. Never know what the, the news is going to turn up over three days. Dow down about 100 points right now, 116. It's Microsoft, Salesforce, Home Depot, Apple, Disney, the growth trades that are weighing the most on the Dow. Caterpillar, Nike, American Express adding the most. As far as the S&P 500, you've got weakness there too, thanks in part to technology, which is the worst of performing sector, but communication services, consumer discretionary, financials, real estate, healthcare, materials, industrial staples, utilities, all gone red. Energy is the only positive sector with a 2% gain in the price of oil. NASDAQ getting hit the hardest right now, down more than 2%. NASDAQ 100 on the week is down about 3%. So it was another brutal week for tech stocks, down 2% overall for the week on the S&P. Happy Passover. Happy Easter, everyone. That's going to do it for me on Closing Bell. Now I'll send it into overtime with Scott Wapner. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.